listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, I'm Mike Gaston, and I am glad to have you guys along. Thanks for joining me. It is episode number 118, 118 of The Currency Podcast. I'm recording this on Saturday, February 19th, 2022. Uh, February 19th being the birthday of my eldest son, my eldest child. So shout out to Josh. Congratulations on your birthday today, son. Uh, it was a wonderful day when you entered the world and changed my life and in in my wife's life, your mother's life forever. Wonderful. So we're very proud of you and want to wish you a happy birthday. Folks, uh, I'm glad you're with me today. I have to clear something up. This is our kind of part one to the New World Order. The last episode, I, I kicked off just doing more of a, a, a an informal ramble around the New World Order and why I want to address it. Before we go any further, I want to address something I said at the very end of the podcast. I made the claim, the statement that Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher and theologian, was a proponent of kind of a federalized one world government. And that was an erroneous statement. Kierkegaard never advocated for that. I had my philosophers that begin with the letter K mixed up in my mind. I was kind of shooting from the hip. That was He was not in my notes in previous research and reading throughout the last handful of years, I came across some thoughts by Immanuel Kant, Kant, a German philosopher, part of the counter enlightenment. He, he kind of falls on both sides. I mean, people claim him as an enlightenment thinker. He's also a counter enlightenment thinker. Uh, but, but Immanuel Kant is the person I was thinking of, but I kept saying Kierkegaard and I don't know why I did that. Now, I guess this just shows that I'm not a philosopher. I'm not an expert in the history of philosophical thought. I'm a bit of an amateur dabbler. Uh, hey, I'm a podcaster, kids, not a professor at Harvard. Although I'd like to, <laughs> at times I do wonder about the veracity of what people are learning, uh, being taught at Harvard and some of these other institutions of higher learning. That said, I want to clear the air here and just make sure that I correct the record. And we're going to talk about Kant today, but it was not Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard that I'm aware of never advocated for any type of world government or f kind of federal federation, if you will, of, of states across the globe. That was Kant. That's who I was thinking of at the time and who I meant to reference. For some reason, I kept saying Kierkegaard. I missed them by a few years. Uh, they're both, you know, both Kant and Kierkegaard are counter-enlightenment thinkers. So I guess maybe I was just, uh, who knows? Doesn't matter. I had it wrong. Now you know. All right. So we're going to move forward today. Today we're going to talk about the early thought. Speaking of Kierkegaard and Kant, we're going to talk about the early thought behind what we experience today as the New World Order. Now, it's important, in my opinion, to go back to the early days because you know, it would be, you'd be forgiven for thinking like what's going on right now has been brewing for the last 20 years, the last 50 years, maybe the last 100 years at the most. Oh, 100 years sounds like forever. We tend to kind of gauge history and the world around us and life and experience based on our, our, our lifespan, a human lifespan. You know, you get, what do you get? 60, 80 years, maybe 90 years if you're lucky, uh, especially if you're healthy throughout that period of time. But the human lifespan in, in terms of humanity is a blip. I mean, your life is going to be a blip in terms of humanity and the experience of mankind. 
And we tend to make the mistake of kind of thinking about things within the terms of our own lifespan, our own historical experience. You know, hey, when I was young in the 70s or the 80s, this is what it was like then. And now look how much it's changed. And I think it's easy to lose the perspective that we have been, that change has been happening all along. You're experiencing the change like, well, things were this way, now they're different. And so something changed within my lifetime. But this change has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I want to spend a little bit of time today going through some of the early thought that leads up to what we're kind of experiencing now is this new world order, the NWO. And so today I want to start with some of that, go through all that and kind of queue up or provide some context for for subsequent episodes. Now, I want to talk for a minute about the Canadian truckers. We, I opened up last episode around the Canadian truckers and specifically I was talking about Justin Trudeau. And I said, what is it that gives Trudeau his strength? How is he so resolute? This is a person of seeming uh, uh, flawed moral character, flawed judgment. He, he's not an especially strong leader. He's not an especially competent leader. Uh, you know, he's, he, he's, he's photogenic, he's telegenic, uh, he's young, I mean, he's 50, uh, but, you know, he, he's able to present himself as a young person, a forward thinker, quite a progressive. And so he's a bit of a darling of the left in many ways. But Trudeau, if you look at his competency, it's, it's really questionable. And if you also look at some of the scandals, if you go under the veneer a little bit uh, and, you, and you look at the character of the individual in question, really troubling. I mean, you've got financial scandals, political scandals, ethical, moral scandals. You've got the whole, I mean, multiple times as an adult in blackface. I mean, this is just like, you know, really questionable judgment by this individual. So in the light of this this so-called insurrection in Canada, which is really, <laughs> which is really middle middle Canada, as I say, middle America, middle North America, working class people standing up and saying we we shan't be mugged around anymore. We shouldn't. We, we don't want to be pushed around by our government. We don't want to be abused. We don't want things forced into our bodies uh, against our will just so that we can have an income, so that we can feed our families and pursue um, a fulfillment of life, you know, and, and nothing extraordinary. We just want a simple life. We want to care for our children, have a home. We want to feed our children and maybe have a cold beer and watch the hockey game. They're not being outrageous in what they want. You might say, well, their behavior is outrageous. Well, it's not really. I mean, if you Put it within the context of what's been going on for the last couple of years. My goodness, it's pretty docile. I mean, they've, yeah, they brought a bunch of big rigs. Oh, scary rigs. They're big, big machines. Yes. Well, these, that's what these men do. They drive big machines. This is how they keep everything going in the country. Food on the shelves and feed their families and feed your family. Big machines. They brought them all to Ottawa. Yes, they were honking their horns. And I, I said in the last episode, I wouldn't want to be there for that. That, that had to be, uh, in, it had to induce a level of insanity. I mean, it just, wow, I can't imagine. Uh, so you've got this relatively docile uprising, if you will, a pushback, a public protest, and, 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 and relatively peaceful. I mean, you know, bounce houses and children and elderly and so on. And, and, and I've been questioning, well, what is it? I questioned the opening, the intro episode last week. What is it about this morally flawed, this person of weak character in Justin Trudeau that gives him the resoluteness, the strength 
to, to refuse to back down, to, to refuse to acknowledge the will of millions of Canadians across the country. You've got 90%. So the, the truckers are essentially saying, look, we've got some very specific things. We want the mandates to end. We want the, the uh, essentially the, the martial law, if you will. I mean, it's an exaggeration. We want that over with. This, 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 the science is saying that this coronavirus is over. It's not what it used to be. It's not lethal. We've got 90% uptake in the country of the vaccine. 90% of the population that can be vaxxed is vaxxed. Stop forcing these mandates. Stop forcing vaccine passports on us. Don't you, you may not restrict our movement across the country based on health records. That's immoral given the circumstances. So we're telling you, we want you to stop. And if you stop, we'll absolutely uh, disperse and get back to work. We're, we're just protesting, saying you're, you're transgressing your portfolio. You're transgressing your authority and power over us, the contract between the people and the governed. See, this is the thing. There is a contract between the people and the governed. The people are agreeing to follow the governed if the governed, but they're saying to the, the government, sorry, sorry, the people, the governed are agreeing to follow the government, the governors, uh, Assuming that the government and the governors will lead them forward in a healthy lifestyle and moral laws and ethical behavior and a good, strong, healthy Canada. And they're saying, look, uh, if, if you begin to transgress our rights and take for yourself what is not yours, meaning if you're going to start becoming totalitarian, you're going to get involved in the totality of my experience as a human being. You're going to dictate to me what I may and may not do, what I can and cannot do then you have transgressed this, this contract between us, this, this uh, covenant, if you will. And in so doing, you've nullified it. So what's interesting is why is Trudeau so resolute? Why is he so strong and steadfast and refusing to back down? Now, it could be just simple things like pride. It could be political ineptness. It could be a, a miscalculation politically, thinking, I think I can get away with this. And my sense is that even if Trudeau wins, which it looks like he's going to, he's bringing the police in. There was a woman today, I think it was today or yesterday evening, I think it was today, uh, trampled by Canadian Mountie. Uh, the Mountie said, oh, someone threw a bicycle at, at one of our horses. Well, I've watched the video of this. It was a woman, an elderly woman in a walker. And, and these Mountie horses, they're not dainty little things. These are big, strong horses. This, this police officer trampled a couple individuals that were in the way. These, and, and these people were just trying to hold their line. They weren't attacking. They were just trying to stand firm saying, I, I don't want to be pushed around by by thugs. That's what it is. I don't want to be pushed around by fascist thugs. Uh, you know, what a crime. So this Mountie trampled this woman while well, they said, oh, they threw a bicycle. No, it was her walker. This was an elderly woman out in the cold, standing up for what she believed Canada should be all about, trying to get the attention of the political elite to say enough is enough. We're not even asking you to resign. We're just saying, stop. You're abusing your power. They trampled her. She died. She's dead. This woman's dead. And so it's looking like I think Trudeau is going to win this battle, meaning they're going to clear out Ottawa. They're forcing, they've got their emergency powers. 
the the political opposition it's such a polite process there's there's no outrage i mean it's it, it i don't think the the political opposition is going to be able to do anything it's a hot potato nobody wants to deal with it Trudeau's going to be able to clear the streets eventually. They're co-opting uh, truck drivers that have tow trucks that, and forcing them to start clearing trucks out. They're impounding trucks. They're arresting people, so on and so on. He's going to accomplish his goal of clearing out Ottawa. I think there's going to be a political cost here. I don't think that he wins the war necessarily. Well, what I was going for earlier on in the last episode is to say the reason we need to understand what's going on with this new world order is I think that Trudeau is an example of a new world order politician. He's part of the new world order. That's not a conspiracy claim. That's not a secret cabal claim. If you go back from the 1300s and on, we can find a thread, an intellectual thread, and it's not hidden of where this comes from, why people think the way they do and where this is going. I think that Trudeau is part of this thread. He is the kind of embodiment of it coming into its fullness. And yeah, he, it, my argument's been, even if they defeat Trudeau in the streets, even if they're able to push back and get the mandates lifted, we have to understand that the new world order is something way beyond a series of mandates or an unpopular, heavy-handed politician. This is a worldview. This is, this is a vision for humanity and the globe that transcends just sovereign states, municipalities, party politics, and elections. It's something much bigger than that. So let's start off with kind of the beginning of this thought. Uh, you've all heard of Dante. Dante wrote a, uh, a book kind of play called Dante's, we call it Dante's Inferno, Inferno. But Dante wrote a book uh, somewhere between 1312 and 1313. He was a medieval. He wrote a book in the early 1300s called De Monarchia. De Monarchia, the monarch. And essentially... Dante was addressing the Catholic Pope. In 1302, the Catholic Pope at the time issued a papal bull called Unum Sanctum. And in that, the Pope made the argument uh, that the Pope has all authority over both religious and secular issues, that his authority, because it comes from God, supersedes all other authority. His, he is supreme in all matters. So you have all these monarchs that are over different countries, if you will, nations and countries. And these monarchs are hereditary often, not always, but often just hereditary. They're ruling their country, their people, and so on. But that each monarch is actually superseded by the Pope. They're talking about Europe. I mean, the Pope could make the argument that this is global, but you know, they, they didn't have global reach at the time. But because the Pope was the direct descendant, and this is their argument, this isn't, but because the Pope was the direct descendant where God, uh, you know, from, you know, Peter was the first apostle, the, the Pope, and then this apostolic secession all the way down to the current Pope at the time. So the, the, and they call this the hero, hierocratic concept. 
hierocratic concept, meaning you, you've got the sun and the moon. So the sun is kind of the center and the moon revolves around it. You know, it's like this, the sun is because they saw these two things in the sky, but the sun was the, was the supreme celestial body, whereas the moon was like a secondary celestial body. So it was this hierocratic, like, like the Pope was the sun because God had all authority and the Pope was God's man on earth. He was Christ's vicar on earth. And so he had all authority. He was supreme in all matters. And so kings had to submit to him. Municipalities, princes, different powers and authorities all had to submit to the Pope. This was issued in 1302. This is a bit of a power grab. And if anybody knows their history, I mean, the popes were not always uh, holy men, <laughs> nor are they now, but um, very political. The pope was very political. And so Dante comes out with this thing called De Monarchia, and it's this book, and he makes the argument that, hey, look, we need to have a secular equivalent to the pope. There needs to be a, a second holy Roman emperor. So there should be two of them. The pope is the holy Roman emperor. But there should be a second Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope, and let's call it the Holy Roman Emperor, because there are two issues in life, in the world. The one issue is, is happiness on earth, and the second issue is eternal life. There's a physical need and a spiritual need. The physical need is this wellness, happiness on earth. Oh, I've got some food in my stomach. I've got a roof over my head. I have a, a, a spouse that loves me. I, I have children. I, I have the freedom to move about a little bit and conduct my affairs and be unmolested as long as I'm behaving myself, etc. This is this kind of material. This is the here and now. This is the life on earth. But they viewed the human being as kind of being a two-part entity. There was a physical aspect and there was a spiritual aspect. And, and so Dante was arguing in his De Monarchia that we need to have a second ruler on this earth because the Pope is just a man. How is it that a man has all power, that one man is supreme over all things? That can't be right because the Pope isn't perfect. The Pope is a man just like the rest of us. He's a human being. He's flawed. The scripture teaches he's sinful. He, you know, all these things. He's, he's born into this world like the rest of us uh, and is in need of Christ for salvation and sanctification and justification and restoration, all the, all the Asians. <laughs> and so Dante was saying, because he's a man, you can't invest all power in this guy. There needs to be a bit of a check and balance. There needs to be a bit of a separation. And so Dante made the argument for a kind of world king, this holy Roman emperor that would oversee all aspects of the globe, if you will, because they're thinking in terms of the known world as they knew it that would be over all secular matters. This, this, this Holy Roman Empire, Empire, Emperor, sorry, this world king would be responsible for the physical well-being, the happiness and fulfillment of human beings. This is really the first kind of argument that I'm aware of for separation of church and state. This is where we start to see this type of thinking. Back in the 1300s, so this is kind of the first seed of a couple things here. One is the separation of church and state saying you can't have all this power invested in the Pope. And for those of you that don't know, I mean, back in the day, the Pope did reign supreme. I mean, kings were, they would, there was a lot of political machinations and, and maneuvers and stuff going on, but they were fearful. Like if the Pope excommunicated a king, that was bad news. You did not want to lose your eternal salvation. You did not want to be 
excommunicated from the faith. It was the Pope and the church who legitimized each monarch. You didn't get to be the king unless the Pope gave his blessing. I mean, think about that. The Pope really did reign supreme. Now, there was a lot of jockeying for power. There was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of background stuff. It's fascinating how crazy things were back in the day. And this is one of the reasons that the Vatican is such a political entity. People think of the Vatican as a bunch of guys in robes, maybe some homosexuality going on, apologies, but, you know, all that kind of stuff. But really, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of guys like church guys this is very political, very political. The, the Holy Roman Empire was a very political entity, at times had its own military. I mean, this was a, he was a political power. He was a, a military power, the Pope. And yet he reigned supreme over all the European lords and kings and princes and so on. And so Dante makes this argument in his book from 1312, 1313, saying, hey, we need to split up this power. The Pope is just a man. He's not perfect. And he's, and he's driven by his own desires at times. He's driven by sin at times. He's flawed. We can't just trust that everything he does, says, and wills is perfect. He's not Christ. And uh, so we need this kind of balancing power. So let's, so the first idea, I mean, let's separate church and state under two different heads over the globe. But around that comes this concept of a secular authority over the globe. I mean, the Western world, but the globe, a secular authority invested with God's power over the world. And very interesting. That's in the 1300s. This is where this thinking initially starts to show up. It's the first probably recorded, at least in Western thought, of the idea of a, of a global government. Now, along comes Hobbes, another, another uh, philosopher and thinker. And I'm not going to get too much in the background of each of these folks. I mean, you've heard some of these names before, I'm sure. He wrote a famous book, treatise called Leviathan. That was written in 1651. I say written, it was probably published. I don't know when he wrote it, but it was published. It came out in 1651. So now we're, we're about 250 years forward, 230, 40 years forward, 1960, 1651. 1651. Mike, you don't want to have to keep doing corrections at the beginning of each podcast. Let's get it right. And Hobbes in Leviathan, he, he articulates that a world state is probably unnecessary. We don't have to have a world government. So whereas Dante is saying we need this world king, of, you know, two, three hundred years later, Hobbes comes out and says, look, this is in Leviathan's all about state power, the authority of the state, the king and, and violence, coercion and so on. And he says we don't necessarily need a world state. That's not necessary. But. He did envision this idea of an interstate order. It's kind of a, like a federation of states through social contracts saying, hey, let's work together. So you have all these countries, essentially princes and kings over their kingdoms and, and nations and states saying, let's work together. Let's, we, we've got the need to preserve ourselves. And the best way that we can... St- affect self-preservation is to work together. Why don't we work together? It doesn't mean necessarily that you have one king over all of them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to change all their laws and so on. You kind of see this. This is almost like an early articulation of the European Union. 
They're all independent countries. I mean, the European Union reaches probably way farther than Hobbes ever envisioned back in the 1600s. But this idea of these independent states coming together for self-preservation, that they would federate together, that they would work together uh, through a social contract. Let's make social agreements with one another. These could be things that will come to each other's aid in case of attack, will we'll allow commerce between us. We'll, we'll allow our citizens from our countries to travel, you know, relatively freely without being molested or, you know, whatever these things are. Maybe we'll work together on certain projects, bridges over rivers that divide our countries. Who knows? But love, but in Leviathan, Hobbes says, look, I don't know that we need a world dictator. We don't know that we need a world king. But I think this idea of States coming together to federate through a social contract. Well, he said that's rational. That, that, that'll probably just happen on its own. Because why wouldn't these entities figure out over time, why don't we work together? And so you see this evolution of the thought. Not that he attacks Dante's position or rips it apart, but says, I don't know if this is necessary, but here's a different way to think about it. And he kind of posits it, positions it as this natural progression. It's rational. Why wouldn't these guys work together? Okay, so now we jump forward to Immanuel Kant. Not Kierkegaard, ladies and gentlemen, but Immanuel Kant. Now, or Immanuel Kant, uh, forgive me. I don't know. I don't know if I'm affecting accents, saying things correctly. We'll just throw these names out. I'll probably say it. It's kind of, I feel like it's uh, like the vice president, uh, Harris's first name. Is it Kamala, Kamala, Kamala? Is she, I, I feel like I've heard her say it different ways every time. All right. So Immanuel Kant comes out. Now, Kant was born in 1724, and he died in the early 1800s, maybe 18, 1804, I think 1804. So Kant, 1724 to 1804, let's say. And, you know, this guy's like a central figure in philosophy of his day. I said to you that he is the kind of beginning of the German counter-enlightenment philosophers. He also gets claimed as one of the Enlightenment philosophers, so Kant kind of is living in the in between here. But in the in the mid late mid to late 1700s, you know, he's out there publishing work and so on. And Kant says, "Look, um, I don't like the idea of a world monarch. Okay, I don't like this idea of a world king. That uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if he names." Um, I don't know if he names Dante specifically, but you know this idea of a world monarch. I don't like it, and he's he's concerned about it because he he's pretty convinced it would lead to totalitarianism and despotism. You put somebody in charge like that, even if they're supposed to be over the affairs of the natural world and the state. Maybe the Pope is responsible for the affairs of the spirit and the and the eternal and the sacred. There's no way that a flawed human being that has that much power. It is going to remain good and true. And some of Kant's arguments are really good arguments. I mean, he, a world monarch is going to be remote to most of the people that, that are underneath him. You know, when you have a king for your name, a lot of these nations are not big. I mean, a lot of us are used to living in these big countries. You look at China back in the day, you look at Europe even now, uh, you know, like these were small little kingdoms. You could travel across them by horseback in a matter of days. I mean, I mean, it doesn't mean that they weren't far flung, but we're not talking about empire right now. We're talking about the nation state. 
Some of them were city-states, the nation-state, but these were small. They were regional. They were geographical. They were defined by the terrain. There was a mountain range here and a river there, and you got this little chunk of land and the people that share the same language and religion and culture and history. Boom, you got a nation. They got a king. Those kings are embedded in that culture. Even if they're even if they're marrying in, like, hey, I'm I'm you know I'm a Saxon and I'm taking over here in Normandy and you know we're going across the river the pond to England and so on. Like, I know the families intermarried and different you know groups took over, but but you were kind of embedded with your people. You weren't remote from them. You were a part of them. They were your people. They were there on your streets. They were there at your courts. They were there at your doors. They were. They were pleading with you. They were pet, pet, uh, petitioning you. They were serving you. They were cheering you. I mean, this was a, you were physically present with these people. Even if the kingdom was a little far flung, you were still physically present. A world king is remote. A world king is not connected to his people. A world king doesn't know his subjects. A world king is this kind of almost abstracted entity. And so the concern that Kant had one of the concerns is that the more remote this world king becomes, and in it, and he has to be remote by nature. The world's a huge place. I mean, even if you're sitting in modern world with airplanes and ships and all the things that we have to get it and transport around, it's still remote. What goes on at the at the UN in New York, which I can be, I can get on an airplane and be to New York in an hour or two, a couple hours. I can be in New York City from from Charleston, South Carolina. Thousand, I can do a thousand miles in an hour or two in an airplane. That's still pretty remote. Those people don't know me. They don't know how I live. They have no understanding and no interest, no connection to me whatsoever. Not even, you know, many degrees of separation. They are two different worlds. And so Kant was concerned that you set up a world monarch, a world king. You, it's going to lead to totalitarianism and, dis, and despotism because this person is not connected to the people. There's no push and pull. There's, there, there's no investment in who the people are. And so the king is just able to do what the king wants and dictate down and have the power, the violence and, of coercive power that the state often has. And, and there's no check and balance. There's no fear of reprisal. I mean, how, the, whole world, you know, the whole world's not going to uprise against you. So what if you're squashing something off in some far-flung area? So what if you're enslaving people and, and sending them to the mines? So what if you're doing these things? You're, you're, you're at the top of the pile. You're so far removed, it's not going to touch you. You don't know these people. You don't have any emotional investment in them. And it's in their best interest to do exactly as you say. So his concern was it would lead to this totalitarian and his despotism. But that said, he still believed that humanity and human history was progressing forward to something better. And what he idealized was this concept of a world republic. So essentially he's saying, look, I'm rejecting the idea of monarchy, but I like this idea of a world republic, a kind of liberal, international, cosmopolitan world government. This idea of kind of a world republic where you have all these states that have the same kind of concept of, of, you know, it's a liberal idea of, of individual freedom, freedom of religion, uh, economic freedom, you know, a little bit of Adam Smith in there. You can have your free markets, laissez-faire and so on. 
we eliminate the monarchy and we have this republic where people are really engaged in their own government. They argue out ideas. They're invested. The people are invested in their ideas that they argue out in the arena of, of public discourse. The winning ideas kind of float to the top. People have liberty. People have freedom. They can move between classes. They can do better for each generation. Technology, uh, you know, like mechanization and so on, technology and and ideas and finance and economy and wealth, they all lead to this progression forward to a better world. And so he thought, you know, what would be great is if we had this idea of unified humanity under this idea of individual freedom and this global kind of cosmopolitanism that's that's put together under this idea of a, a global republic, kind of like a giant America. <laughs> America initially, you know, supposedly a classical republic, not anymore, not, not in a long time. So, so Kant had this idea of a, of a global government, but he just didn't like the idea of monarchy. He wanted that global government to be founded and, and contextualized within the concept of a republic. And we don't have to unpack republic totally here. I think you guys get the, the broad strokes of this. And, and Kant's argument is that, yeah, you actually would get world peace. You would get a better world if this could happen. It's an idealized thing. It's the way that humanity can move forward into a better world. This would be good. We'd eliminate war. We could probably eliminate a lot of human suffering and some of the things that we're all unhappy with about life. And so Kant starts to push this idea forward, not Kierkegaard, but Kant. So that, that brings us up into the 1800s. Now, what's really interesting is you start to see this show up in other Forums. These are, you know, we've been talking about philosophers, you know, these people like Hobbes and Kant, uh, you know, and how they're wrestling with these ideas and, and, and even Dante. I mean, we think of Dante as kind of a novelist, but he was a thinker. I mean, Dante was definitely a thinker. So all these thinkers. Now we, now we jump forward to a guy like H.G. Wells. Anybody remember H.G. Wells? You probably had to read some of his work as a kid. I remember, you know, we'd read like uh, The Invisible Man. Uh, the Time Machine, War of the Worlds is a classic one. Everybody knows about War of the Worlds. That was H.G. Wells, uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. I mean, he was a, a novelist and um, in the early turn of the century, 1900s. And he is really well known for some of these science fiction books. A lot of people actually think of H.G. Wells as the father of science fiction writing. Now, the, now, now Jules Verne and some others get the same label, but he's often called the father of science fiction because of all those books that he wrote. Now he was a progressive. He had a he, he had a vision, a very progressive vision of utopia. He wanted to see mankind come into this utopia, a very secular version of heaven on earth, if you will, if you will. And and he wrote this book in uh, 1901 called Mankind in the Making. There are online versions. If you Google it, there are online versions available. I can, if I remember to do so, I'll throw a link in the uh, description below. The podcast, but in 1901, this book came out, and he made this argument for something that he called a new republic, the new republic. And the idea behind the new republic was essentially this 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 global federation, like we're talking about. This is this is becoming a more modern articulation of the new world order. He's making this argument for a global federation. Now, in his mind, this was kind of an Anglo-American thing. It's led by Anglo-America. So, the, you know, kind of the UK, America vision of the world. We're becoming, you know, America's becoming more of a global power. We haven't quite come into our own at this point. 
in uh, H.G. Wells even envisions this kind of thing he calls a civilizing mission. He's we, we, we have to have a civilizing mission that goes you know, out throughout the colonies and, and the other parts of the world, the kind of dark third world masses and brings them up to speed so they can all participate in this, uh, this vision of utopia that we're trying to create through our new republic, this global government. Now, H.E. Wells is a pretty popular guy. I mean, all of us have had some interaction with his work, whether it's through movies, whether reading his books and so on. It's, it's not a, this isn't just some obscure guy. He's, he's a big socialist, big progressive, and he wanted to see utopia. I want to read you a quote from a book of his called Anticipations, written and uh, published in 1902. Here's a little quote just to give you a flavor of H.G. Of Wells and his attitude. I mean, this, is, this guy is a piece of work. And he says, and how will the new republic treat the inferior races? How will it deal with the black? How will it deal with the yellow man? How will it tackle that alleged termite in the civilized woodwork, the Jew? Certainly not as races at all. And then jump forward. He he talks a little bit. And then he says, and the Jew also it will treat as any other man. It is said that the Jew is incurably a parasite on the apparatus of credit. If there are parasites on the apparatus of credit, that is a reason for the legislative cleaning of the apparatus of credit. But it is no reason for the special treatment of the Jew. If the Jew has a certain incurable tendency to social parasitism, and we make social parasitism impossible, we shall abolish the Jew. And if he has not, then there is no need to abolish the Jew. That's H.G. Wells saying, hey, the Jews are social parasites. They, they, they're parasites on credit. We'll make laws to abolish it, which means we'll get rid of the Jew. But uh, if he's not a social parasite, he's got nothing to worry about. He'll be fine. We're not really dealing with Jews. We're dealing with the problem. Anyway, that gives you kind of an idea of H.G. Wells. Now, the reason I think this quote is important is because when you think about these people who are imagining this world government, you start to see this this thread that's ominous. You know, Kant was worried about totalitarianism, uh, as you know. I think um, Hobbes had some concerns about abuse of power, especially under a world monarch. This is why they're arguing for this kind of more thoughtful, gentle, kind uh, federation of republics under a world republic. But H.G. Wells also saying we need a new republic, this kind of new government over the face of the earth to, to make this utopia that we want. You start to see this dark part come out, this evil part. I'm not defending the abuse of credit. This isn't a uh, really commentary on the Jewish nation and their place in society. I'm just saying, like, look at how H.G. Wells thinks about those that are inferior, thinks about those that are a threat to the vision of the future. What will we do? We'll just eliminate them. We'll, get, we'll make laws. We'll eliminate them. We will, through force of power and legislative ac- action and violence and coercion, it's kind of implied in there, we're going to make it go away. And if you're willing to submit to our vision for the world, you've got nothing to worry about. But boy, if you're not willing to submit... Uh, You'll just disappear. You won't be an issue. We will make that issue go away. Now, a lot of you might be familiar with the New Republic magazine. It's an American magazine. What's interesting about this, so you, you get H.G. Wells using the phrase New Republic. And you, 
you had this New Republic magazine. So H.G. Wells uses this New Republic in like 1901, 1902. But the New Republic magazine was founded in 1914, late 1914. Well, the first episode, the first edition came out, the first issue, uh, November of 1914. It was founded by Herbert Crawley, a big, big progressive. Walter Lippmann, we're going to talk a little bit about Lippmann. I've talked about him before. He, he was the guy that argued uh, for distributive democracy, that participatory democracy was too much for the average American. Uh, they were just too stupid to really take on the responsibility of a democracy. So it was the, it was the responsibility of the elites to take that on. So Walter Lippmann, uh, so you got Herbert Crowley, Walter Lippmann, and Walter Weil. So these guys... Um, founded them this new republic magazine they don't come out and say that it was you know because of hg wells but obviously this this concept of the new republic was a thing and this magazine was founded to to argue for this progressive vision of the world this new new republic and its politics were liberal and progressive and uh and really talking about the great changes that were brought about by middle class reforms efforts to you know remedy weakness in america's economy and society and so on it, it was really important in changing the character of liberalism and government interventionalism. The, 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 the magazine gets credited with that. Like it, it's responsible for changing the character of liberalism, not only in America, but across the globe and, and really helped legitimize government interventionism, uh, both in America and across the globe. So that's, that's something else. So looking at that, that brings us up to the early 1900s. We've gone through this whole kind of intellectual history, if you will. You know, it's a, we'll call it a survey, starting with Dante in the th early 1300s in his concept of a world king, following Hobbes saying, no, I don't like the idea of a world state, but I do like the idea of a kind of interstate order, a federation of states to help one another and for self-preservation. You get Kant who says, I'm against a world monarch because you might get totalitarianism and despotism, but then said, I do like the idea though of this kind of, um, this kind of uh, global cosmopolitan republic. Then you get H.G. Wells who comes out and says, yeah, uh, let's talk about a new republic, which essentially can bring this Heaven on earth, this secular utopia, uh, but don't God help you if you fall afoul of their vision. And this is where we start to see these dark, these dark aspects and elements of globalism and the new world order. Now, I want to just say one more thing before we jump out of this is there's another kind of thread or stream happening at the same time. And this is communism. This is Marx. You've got Marx in the 1800s, Karl Marx, and you've got early communists. Now, what they do is they reject the Western idea of a world federation. They don't like that idea. They don't want the states getting together to work together. But that's because that idea of a federation of states works against their ideology. They're, they're kind of economic slash religious belief, which is that mankind is evolving and our societies, the classes, economics, political structures are evolving. There's a process happening that can't be stopped. And yeah, they're against capitalism, but they view capitalism as a stage on the way to something better, something that they think they've discovered. And so what they're saying is, look, we are against a world federation. I don't want to see the states as they are come together and unify. That's just going to slow down evolution. 
What they want to see is the unification of mankind under class, economic class. And rather than a political system that brings everybody together, they want to see what they think is this world socialist economy, what they were calling at the time the Bolshevik world state. This is communism. You've heard me say before, socialism is not necessarily global. It's like, you know, Germany was national socialist. The Nazis were national socialists. They were socialists. They were Marxist in the sense that they had a socialist economy, but they weren't trying to make sure that this was part of the global control of the world. Now, somebody like the Nazis were trying to take over the whole world. I don't think that's necessarily true. They definitely were trying to build an empire, but not a global one necessarily. But communism viewed itself, and this is why the communists came to war with the socialists, because communism wanted to see the whole world united under the Bolshevik world state. And anyone that stood in the way of that, whether you're a capitalist, socialist, monarchist, whatever you were, if you were a federation of states coming together to try to make a better world, you were anathema to the Bolshevik world state, which is the unification of the globe under an economic class. Now, we know in practical application, it wasn't that way. It's totalitarian. It's elites controlling, dehumanizing, and pushing around the hoi polloi, the mob, the demos, the proletariat. But I want to point out that you see a similar thread happening, an idea kind of happening through this, this idea of Marx and the communist uh, early communists, that they want to also see a kind of new world order, if you will, founded on economics. And what we're seeing coming forward is the synthesis of Western thought around a federation of states and a utopia and peace for mankind and Marxist thought around class struggle and economic systems and the unification of mankind through economic class. This is where we find ourselves today. It's this hybridization, and it shows up in so many ways. We're not going to cover that today, but that's kind of the picture. That's the early thought that brings us up to the early 1900s and the start of World War I. Now, we're going to talk about the League of Nations in the next episode. That is kind of the first manifestation of this, this attempt to have some sort of world governance of, of, uh, of a kind. And we'll talk about that and it's in its short life and its collapse. And then, and then what comes out of that guys, I hope this, you found this, I hope you found this useful as I, I enjoy talking about this stuff. Hopefully you're gaining something from this. I know we're setting the table a little bit here. I'm trying to provide some thinking, but if you remember anything coming out of this, just remember this is a, this new world order is a long time in the making. These are ideas that have been kind of brewing and stewing and simmering and evolving and in, in, in combining with other ideas over time to bring us to where we are today. It's important to understand that this is not what we're experiencing today is not some fluke. It's not just because some guy or gal lost an election or won an election or somebody cheated or fill in all the blanks. All those things matter. I'm not trying to poo poo those things. They all matter. But fixing those things don't necessarily stop the freight train that is this idea of a liberal cosmopolitan globe, this utopia. It really is the progressive vision of heaven on earth. 
This is a long time coming, starting all the way from the 1300s. And here we are in 2022, wrestling with the very real abuses of human rights and the closing of the noose around the necks of people in the West and the East to, to, to what we don't know. And, they, and what they have now is the technology and the capability to enforce this in ways that they never did before. So if you're interested to learn more, feel free to get in touch. I'm always happy to have a chat. I'm not an expert on this stuff, uh, but it's fun to talk about this stuff. I'd be happy to I'll, I'll put some links in the, in the description down below. Uh, just go to mikegaston.com forward slash the currency 118. And you'll find links to some of the things that I'm talking about here. Uh, you can always do your own research. If there's something that you think I'm not capturing correctly or articulating or representing fairly, uh, if I'm saying uh, Kierkegaard instead of Kant, feel free to get in touch. Just hit me up at mike at mikegaston.com. Always love to hear from you guys. Guys, that's all I've got for today. I love each and every one of you. I hope you have a great week and I will catch you in the next episode. Cheers. <laughs>